Live from NPR News. A quick warning, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence. The late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi received her casket this morning at the start of a short ceremony. May the memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Yita Ruchel Batsirolea, forever and ever be a blessing. Ginsburg's funeral is next Tuesday after the Jewish High Holy Day of Yom Kippur. She'll be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. The U.S. government executed a black federal inmate last night for the first time in 17 years. From member station WFIU, George Hale has more. In his final moments, Christopher Vialva prayed for the families of a couple he kidnapped and murdered during a 1999 robbery in Texas. It was the seventh execution by lethal injection since the Trump administration began carrying out death sentences in July. Attorneys had argued Vialva's race played a role in the sentencing. The U.S. Supreme Court denied a motion to delay the execution earlier Thursday. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 32 points. The Nasdaq is up nearly 80 points. This is NPR News. Hi. Hi, I'm George. Hi, I'm Lisa. Come nice on in. Angela Moore is a defense attorney in San Antonio. I'm in my, you know, bathroom getting ready for my work day, and I listen to NPR every morning, uh, and I heard your story come on that Christopher Vialva was executed, and it stopped me in my tracks. Twenty years ago, Moore was on the other team. I had not heard a word about this. I had not heard anything about Christopher Vialva or Brandon Bernard because generally in the federal system, they do not actually get executed. And I wasn't expecting them to get executed when I prosecuted them. Moore helped the federal government defeat Bernard's and Vialva's appeals. And, and I'll tell you something interesting. Because the government won so much, I asked my chief for the hardest cases, the ones that the government could lose, because I wanted that experience. The Vialva and Bernard case wasn't one of them. She easily shot down claims in front of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Why my chief tapped me to handle the death penalty appeal because I was the only one on staff who had actually done post-conviction death penalty work. But the prosecution and sentencing planted doubts in her mind. But the point is, death should be, if you believe in it, an absolute last recourse. Having worked on many, many death penalty cases, I can honestly say I do not believe in the death penalty anymore. I will never prosecute another death penalty case. Once Bernard's was set three weeks later, Moore spoke up, and others joined her. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, I'm George Hale, and this is Rush to Kill. In this episode, we meet the people behind a global campaign to save Brandon Bernard. 
and learned that many of them share responsibility for putting him on federal death row. 20 years later, they say the experience transformed their beliefs about capital punishment and fairness in the justice system. There's no presumption of innocence. That's a fiction. The fact you're there indicted and the government's prosecuting you, you've done something. And you have to prove to the jury you didn't. When a jury sees a young black man sitting there uh, next to his defense attorney and the government with the gold eagle and the United States flag pinned on their lapel, they're already biased. Prosecutors know this, but they don't often say it. They, They are of the mindset, this guy is guilty unless he can prove his innocence. Hi there. I'm all right. How are you? That's quite all right. Um, I uh, I hope you will let me know if my sound is okay. I asked Bernard's lawyer, Rob Owen, to explain what happened that day in Colleen, Texas, and Bernard's role in particular. He was convicted in 1999 uh, as a participant in a carjacking in which two people were killed. And among the important facts for understanding why this case is so unusual uh, include that Brandon was only 18 years old at the time of the crime, which is as young as a person can be and be eligible for the the federal death penalty. And um, at the time that Brandon was prosecuted, the law hadn't actually uh, evolved that far yet. Back then, 17-year-olds were old enough for a death sentence in some places. The U.S. Supreme Court has since ruled that 18 is the cutoff. Nobody under 18 can get the death penalty, but that still means that Brandon is basically at the very uh, youngest age a person could be and be death eligible. The second important thing about the case, according to Owen and Bernard's other supporters, is that his involvement in the whole episode was minimal. Brandon is part of a group of kids who make a decision to rob someone. The DOJ didn't call them kids. They called them gang members. And uh, the, the plan is to ask somebody for a ride. Uh, Once you get a ride from somebody, you pull a gun on them and get them to take you to an ATM and you take money from them via the ATM. And then in the original plan, uh, you take them to some remote location and let them out, you let them go. Bernard's attorneys have been emphasizing this for years. He not only didn't know of any plan to kill the Bagleys, he didn't even know who they were. So there was never originally any intention on the part of these kids to hurt or kill anybody. Um, When the actual carjacking takes place, when the group of kids asks uh, these passerby for a ride, Brandon is actually not present. Brandon, another one of the kids, has wandered off into a laundromat that's nearby to play video games. So they come out a few minutes later after playing video games and their friends are gone and they have no idea what's happened. They know that there was a plan to uh, take the victims to uh, an ATM. So they drive around for a bit looking at different ATMs. They don't find their friends anywhere. And so they say they don't know what's happened. They assume something you know, they've changed their mind, something else happened. So they just, they go home. Uh, they, first they stop by a grocery store and they put in applications for jobs. And then uh, after they're done with that, they go back to their respective homes and watch TV the rest of the afternoon. Then Brandon gets a call later in the afternoon from his friend Terry, who says he has gotten a call 
Chris Vialva, and that they did in fact abduct some people. They still have them in, in custody in their car and they don't know what to do. And they need Brandon to bring another vehicle, uh, which presumably is going to be a getaway vehicle in order for them to escape the scene. All this time, Todd and Stacy Bagley have been in the trunk of their car, pleading with Vialva and the others to let them go. And of course, in the meantime, there's been terrible suffering by the victims. Uh, the, the other defendants, when they have the victims in the trunk, they drive around with them for several hours in the hot Texas summer day. Um, and, and of course, they, they felt great terror. I'm sure that they suffered enormously uh, being where they were. But Brandon wasn't there. Brandon didn't have anything to do with any of those events. But also ministering to them. They were youth ministers visiting Colleen from Iowa. They reportedly sang and prayed aloud for their captors. So he rejoins the group later in the day. There's a uh, dispute in the testimony at trial about what is said. Uh, one witness testifies that uh, these two cars, Brandon's car and the victim's car, are parked near one another in a local park. And that uh, Terry Brown, who was sitting with Brandon in his car, goes up to the victim's car and speaks to Chris Vialva. Uh, the uh, Christopher Lewis, who was also present in Vialva's car, testifies at Brandon's trial that the conversation was loud enough that Brandon must have been able to hear it back in his car when they talked about what they were going to do and where Vialva said, you know, these people have seen my face and we're going to have to kill them. Terry Brown says, that's not what was said, that Vialba said that they, they might kill them, they might just burn the car. He, Terry Brown, says you know, to myself, I really couldn't believe they were talking seriously about killing somebody, but we knew they wanted to burn the car, and so Brandon and I were sent off to get some lighter fluid at a convenience store, and then we followed them in the victim's car to a remote location out in the woods. That was the uh, fort, they, they drove onto the Fort Hood Military Reservation, None of these kids knew where the fort was. They didn't know that this was on Fort Hood. At the time, the piece of property had no obvious boundary like a fence or a sign. They just thought they were driving out in the woods. But what they actually did was they crossed over a, a property line onto the fort's territory, which is why this is a federal death penalty case, um, because it's the, the crime is committed on federal property. So uh, at that location, uh, Brandon and Terry and Chris Lewis all spray lighter fluid around the car. Uh, the, uh, at, at some point, Christopher Vialva asks them to pop open the trunk and he puts on a mask before he does that. There's no, all, the, all the witnesses there say this happened. So Christopher Vialva puts on a mask and then opens the trunk. And I think some of the kids may have thought that he wasn't gonna kill the victims precisely because he bothered to put on a mask before he opened the trunk. But once he opens the trunk, he immediately shoots both of the victims uh, in the head. Todd Bagley is killed immediately and Stacy Bagley is immediately rendered unconscious, uh, which is fortunate because uh, the next thing that happens is the car is set on fire. And although she is still alive for a few seconds to a few minutes after the fire begins to burn, she's totally unconscious and there's not any evidence by anybody that says she suffered as a result of the fire. But the prosecutors managed to convince the jury that Stacy felt the burns. I'll just hit record. Mic check, test. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Okay. My name is Gary McClung. Maybe a couple times I might just ask you to just to repeat yourself. Okay. In case like a car drives by or something. And, uh, sure. Yeah. Gary McClung was on the jury. 
I got picked. It was the it was the one and only time I'd ever been picked for jury duty. I had been even called for jury duty. Really? Yeah, never had even been called before. He thinks they got it wrong 20 years ago, and so do his fellow jurors. A majority of the ones still alive opposed the execution. They don't tell you what it's about right away, right? No, um, I had. Well, uh, when they were picking the, the during the process of picking jurors is the first time I started getting a clue of what the whole thing was about. I, I never would have imagined I'd have got it selected out of all the ones that were there and they ended up calling me in. Yeah, and I imagine it's kind of an intimidating situation. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> there's a judge, there's a prosecutor. When you saw Christopher Bialva and Brandon Bernard, what did you, what did you make of them? Well, um, it seemed to be two very different um, demeanors. Uh, Mr. Vialva was more, he would have been more sullen and just really, um, I guess the way it always struck me is that this whole thing was a big inconvenience to him, you know. And uh, whereas Brandon Bernard seemed um, really scared and pretty broken. But the prosecution did its job, overcoming doubts about Bernard's lack of culpability. They believed Stacy Bagley would still be alive if it weren't for Bernard, even though she suffered a gunshot wound to the head and wasn't conscious when Bernard supposedly lit the fire. There was a lot of things. I think ultimately the death penalty for Brandon Bernard was the biggest struggle for, me, for myself and one other juror. And... Um, the deciding factor, um, had there been probably just the evidence given on um, the forensic e evidence um, about Miss Stacy, um, if that ha there had been more on that, because it was just assumed that she wouldn't have died had it had not been for the fire. And um, Mr. Bernard was, you know, partly responsible for the fire. But I think that's the main thing that always bothered me about uh, Brandon Bernard. Yeah. Um, you said there was one of those jurors too? It's one of those things, it's hard to go on just a gut feeling in a situation like that, but it just seemed like that had he known somebody was gonna die, I don't think he would have been involved in it. And they're asking you a lot. Well, I think, you know, the, the thing that's bothered me the most about it is just the realization that had my convictions been a little more solidified and there would have been some more, um, some, some of the different uh, forensic evidence brought in, um, And had I just stood my ground, it wouldn't have happened for Brandon Bernard. Yeah. McClung says he remembers one juror in particular, the only black person on the jury, who convinced two holdouts to go for death. I can't get in the other jurors' heads, you know, and know for sure, but it, it just seemed like um, that I guess maybe guilt by association, you know, pretty much was... Uh, you know, he was definitely, he, he never at any time stopped and said, I'm not going to do this, you know, and that was a, 
um, pretty strong <laughs> um, factor. And uh, another one of the jurors, um, evidently, he he had had some experiences with this um, the, with the gang that they were involved with. Um, I mean, not personally, but he knew about them. He lived in a neighborhood where that the, the that gang was active in that in his neighborhood, and he said something to the effect that, "Look," he said, "I know these boys," and he's not he wasn't talking about Christopher Vialva and Brandon Bernard in particular, but the the group you know in general, and he said they're no good, and he said they're not going to change, and that kind of I think that helped sway you know a lot of the um yeah yeah did it make a difference that he was black no no As, no, not, sorry, not Brandon, yeah no no not at all uh it just uh, that's one thing in this whole in the whole time there i didn't sense any I'm sure as much as you don't want to make yourself out like you're the victim. Well, <laughs> sure. no, I... But you are in some level. Well... You're giving yourself a break a little bit. Uh, I don't know. It's hard, I imagine. McClung says that in the years since he voted to sentence Bernard to death, he started to rethink supporting the death penalty. Uh, yes, I would be. I just, I wouldn't feel like it would be something, um, as a Christian, that um, I'd want to be involved in. Is, um, that, is that because you're... Um, faith is against the death penalty or your, or your, your interpretation? Well, uh, not necessarily against the death penalty. Um, just, I just don't feel like that's an area that um, that I'm to be involved in as a Christian. Um, it would be uh, very similar to military service and things like that too. Yeah, it's not your place on this planet. Yeah. Yeah, that that would be pretty much it. I, I guess conscientious objector, even, you know, as far as uh, things like jury duty and things like that even. And I, I still won't say that I don't think it's appropriate in some situations. Um, again, I just don't feel it's like it's my call to make. Yeah. You know, that's, I believe, I believe God uses civil government and directs even direct civil government. Um, it's just a different um, sphere of influence, I think. Many years after Bernard arrived in Indiana, post-conviction defense attorneys and investigators started looking for McClung. We don't use uh, social media. I don't even have a cell phone. Yeah. So the federal public defenders, they said they looked for me for three years. <laughs> I said he had never had this much tr pr trouble finding somebody in my entire career. Well, it was it was kind of funny. I was uh, actually the day, I, the first day I met them, I was in the shower and my son um, knocked on the door and said, a man from Washington wants to talk to you. And I said, well, I just got in the shower. I said, can I... Can I talk to him late? I'm, I was assuming he was on the phone. He came back. My son came back in a little bit. And he said, he, Dad, he said he drove all the way here from Washington. He's not going to leave until he gets to talk to you. 
<laughs> so he was standing on the porch. I didn't realize he was there, but they were super nice. It's November 2020. The United States has set two new execution dates before the end of the year, two in December and one today in a few hours. After I witnessed the executions of William LaCroix and Christopher Villalba, the Prison Bureau, in general, allowed Adam and I to switch places or change plans several times. But other reporters weren't allowed in at all. I've never seen anything like the way the BOP conducted itself for the purpose of these executions when it came to the media situation. Liliana Segura is a criminal justice reporter for The Intercept. Throughout the execution spree, the Prison Bureau went to unusual lengths to control the flow of information. It just, there was no, there was no press pool. There was no, like you all, you know, people would go out and witness. And like in any other state that I am familiar with, the way that it goes is like the witnesses are selected. Sometimes they're on the spot. I mean, literally in Arkansas and Oklahoma, like it's like a random drawing. Um, and people, yeah, uh, depending on sort of who's eligible. And then once, you know, the witnesses go, they witness, they come back, and then they, you know, it's a press pool. They speak, they describe what they saw to other reporters who were there in the press area. So there's actually a value in being there because you're going to, you know, receive their descriptions of what they saw. And, um, and there was none of that, I mean, uh, in Terre Haute, which... <laughs> It was just all sort of designed to compartmentalize, you know, and sort of deny you information, um, even just the most basic stuff. She's reported from prisons during numerous executions, and she was undoubtedly the most knowledgeable reporter among us. And the prison bureau locked her out of all 13 of the executions conducted under Trump. So that was deeply bizarre um, and very confusing. I don't know if you've ever managed to get them to answer the question of how they selected witnesses, period. I have gotten no answer. Yeah, we FOIA'd the list of everyone who applied. Yeah, I FOIA'd some version of that and have gotten, I've heard nothing. The, the, the situation with the original dates was so bizarre because, like, there wasn't even that weird ass form with the drop down menu, like in the run up to the previously scheduled, like the, the round of executions that were supposed to happen in December 2019. Like there was nothing. So I wrote to the BOP in September, early September of 2019, essentially being like, hi, I'm a reporter. I'm planning on being in Terre Haute for these executions. Can you please put me on whatever list? Please send me whatever information, whatever I need to know in order to apply as a witness or just to be on the ground there. Mm -hmm. And I have the whole thread and it's like, they were like, oh, sure. Yeah, you know, duly noted, whatever, whatever. I write to them again in like November. I'm like, I still haven't heard anything. The executions are coming up next month. Like, what should I do? Similar sort of, oh, we'll let you know when the time comes. And then I finally wrote, like, my, <laughs> my emails are, like, sort of increasingly exasperated and kind of, like, what the hell is going on? And I finally wrote, I'm just going to look at it now Here's because it. it's like, yeah, we're working on these plans for this and we'll be back with you as soon as possible. Thanks. That was November 2019. And then I finally write to them in... Uh, De uh, December 6th, 2019, and I guess I'll, I'll just read you what I wrote if that's like not too annoying. Yeah, 
I go, hello, I'm, I'm following up on the plans for the coming week in Terre Haute. As it stands, I have not received any information whatsoever pursuant to my initial media request months back. As such, I will be arriving in Terre Haute without any guidance from BOP for media covering the planned executions. I'm aware of the stays currently in place and of the possibility that the executions will not go through, but such things are often in flux until the last minute in death penalty cases. So I'm frankly baffled at the lack of information here. Can you please tell me what I'm missing? I'd really appreciate it. So I wrote that December 6th and I got a response. Uh, it looks like that same day. Liliana, there are a number of limited slots for media witnesses, which have already been selected for Monday. We are not able to accommodate additional media on institution property. Please see our website for more information to register your interest in being a future media witness here. And I think that was where he, they finally had that like resource page. But it was like, I remember I I was like, wait a minute, what? Like I've been asking for information for months, like going back to September, at no point had they been like, here's how you apply as a witness. To this day, I have no idea who the media witnesses for the limited slots were, were, you know what I mean? That to me, it's like set the tone for the whole thing going forward. It was like, what is happening? And so then by the time the executions finally did begin in July of 2020, like months later, they clearly had their shit together a little more, but like, that's how it started. Mm -hmm. um, and I've just never dealt with like an agency as sort of maddeningly opaque, you know, not transparent. It's like that weird combination of like malevolence and incompetence. That's like just how, you know, it says it all. Liliana says the way the prison bureau operated was disconcerting compared to what she'd experienced in places like Texas or Alabama. The part of the, like I've been in other prisons, other media centers, um, during an execution and they're they're always totally bizarre because it's this mix of like sort of <laughs> boredom and you're just sort of waiting and there's small talk and at least in like Arkansas years back um the uh prison officials set out um like a tray of, of um, baked goods and there was coffee and there's this whole sort of like atmosphere of like kind of somewhat congenial, like uh, collegial, like kind of, um, I don't know, like they're trying to uh, cater to you or, or be very friendly and kind of, you know, like helpful, but you're there for an execution. And so it all feels totally weird and gross. And, and it's like, why am I making small talk with this, you know, we're yeah. here for, and, and 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 the weird thing about Terre Haute is just like, it was all the weirdness with like none of the pretense of, you know, it was just like silence and awkwardness and like just, you couldn't really get information from people when you asked them one-on-one. -on -one. Like even if you did ask them, like they were just unable to, or unwilling to say anything, you know, it was just nothing. It seemed um, clear that they knew very little. Yeah, I think that was also true. The campaign to save Brandon Bernard inspired thousands of people to sign petitions and share information about the case. Hey players, I need your help. This is Brandon Bernard. When Brandon Bernard will be executed tonight. If Donald Trump doesn't stop the execution, that's the only way 
that this execution will be stopped. So Brendan Bernard was one of the youngest people to ever receive a death sentence at the time of his crime. This is shameful for at least two reasons. Number one, because the death penalty needs to be abolished. Even Kim Kardashian, then married to Kanye West and on better terms with Trump, joined the calls. First and foremost, Brandon, I want you to know that I really believe in you and I'll do anything that I can to help. We are arguing in court. Nothing we are asking of the president or the public would result in Brandon being turned loose. We are not asking anybody to let him go. What we were asking instead is that his life be spared and that he be allowed to live out his days in prison where he is a completely peaceful and compliant inmate. One of the facts about Brandon that we have, uh, have shared with, uh, with uh, the government in asking for clemency is that Brandon's been in prison, as I mentioned, for about 20 years. He's never had a single disciplinary write-up. Uh, if you talk to anybody who has uh, worked with prisoners or anybody who's worked in prisons or anybody who's been to prison, what you hear is that even well-behaved prisoners have some disciplinary problems because they, you know, on a bad day, they snap at a guard, they say something ugly, or they get into a fight with another prisoner, or they get caught trying to steal extra food from the kitchen. You know, it's just even the well-behaved prisoners slip every now and then in terms of getting some disciplinary infractions on their record. Brandon's never had a single write-up. He's never been punished for breaking a prison rule in 20 years. You know, there's just the idea that Brandon has to be killed because we are in some way in da at danger from him or the people around him in prison are at risk of their lives and safety is just preposterous. It's not supported by anything we know about people and how they change as they grow up and how they become less uh, you know, prone to violence as they get older. A key argument in federal death penalty cases is future dangerousness. Owen says the government obtained an expert report about the so-called gang structure. Who's in charge? Who are the leaders? Who are the followers? What's the sort of hierarchical structure within this group of youths? And who's primarily responsible for giving the orders and who, who carries them out, who takes, who gives the orders, who takes the orders. And this expert gave them uh, her opinion that the other defendants in our case, Chris Vialva, Terry Brown, uh, Tony Sparks, were higher in the hierarchy of the gang and therefore were in a sort of leadership role. You know, those were people who uh, were regarded within the gang as leaders. But that Brandon specifically was on the very lowest tier of responsibility in the gang, that he was a quintessential follower who did not have any authority within the gang, didn't tell anybody else what to do, and was basically in the position of doing what other people told him to do. At trial, the government's witnesses argued the exact opposite, all while concealing the information they obtained. Thereby inviting the jury to treat Brandon as someone who was more culpable than in fact he was, because what the government knew from its expert was that in fact everybody in the gang wasn't equal. Brandon was one of the lowest ranking people in the gang, was a total follower, and if people told him what to do, he would do it. And the reason, the other reason I was just saying that that's important is that when the car was set on fire, Chris Bialba told Brandon to set the fire. And the government has 
never denied that. In fact, it's in some of their evidence in the case when the two defendants who cooperated with the prosecution, Terry Brown and Chris Lewis, when they pled guilty, the government prepared a written statement of facts and said, these are the things that we would prove against you if this case went to trial. And those defendants both agreed those things were true. And if you look at that statement of facts, it says that after Vialba shot the victims, he directed Bernard to set the fire, which Bernard then did. So it's uh, the, the, the question of who was, who was at what rank in the gang, who was in charge, who gave orders, who would typically take orders, is a really important one to understanding the, the moral culpability of the relative participants. And, uh, and I think that the government covering that information up was, uh, was a, you know, made the sentencing very unfair. And so we are going back to court to try and get a court to uh, give us a stay of execution and allow us to be heard on that because it, 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 is an, it is an argument that could result in a new sentencing trial for Brandon and another opportunity for him to persuade the sentencer that he should be sentenced to life rather than death. start with the orientation so that we're prepared um, when we are called. Good afternoon, my name is Beth Patios. I'm a public information officer for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I would like to welcome you to the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute. We're here today because the Federal Bureau of Prisons has a responsibility to, to fulfill the order of the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas carry out the death sentence of inmate Brandon Bernard at the United States Penitentiary. Inmate Bernard was sentenced to death on June 13, 2000, after a jury found him guilty of numerous offenses including homicide, murder, carjacking, conspiracy to, to commit murder, first degree murder on a government reservation, aiding and abetting to which he was sentenced to death. On October 19, 2020, Inmate Bernard was notified the director of Bureau of Prisons set the date of December 10, 2020 to carry out the sentence imposed. Inmate Bernard's execution is scheduled to occur today at approximately 6 p.m. This media orientation is being held today to ensure that you can obtain information regarding the scheduled execution and the procedures established for news media representatives. It is our goal to ensure that your needs as media representatives are met to the extent possible. It is critical that we ensure the order and integrity of this process. Following today's briefing, we will have a copy of the press release available for you, and our BOP public webpage will be updated as well. Leading up to the execution date, inmate Bernard had access to his defense attorneys and social visitors. Inmate Bernard was allowed to receive mail and reading material. During his time in the execution facility holding cell, he is under constant staff supervision. The regulations allow for inmate Bernard to select up to six witnesses to include a spiritual advisor, two attorneys, and three family members. The regulations also allow up to eight victim witnesses as well as media representatives. Following today's media orientation, you will be taken into the USP for processing and screening. Our screening procedures for visitors will be much like clearing an airport screening site. From there, you will be transported to the designated media room there will be chairs available for each of you 
However, if you choose to stand, please remain in your designated areas and be mind mindful and respectful of your colleagues. The blinds will be raised and inmate Bernard will be provided the opportunity to make a final short statement. The relevant portions of the judgment and commitment order will be read and then the marshal will ask if the execution can proceed. Once again, there should be no talking as so everyone can hear clearly. The marshal will check with the Department of Justice Command Center. Absent a stay entered by a court, the execution will occur as scheduled. Provided there are no legal impediments to the proceedings, the marshal will advise to proceed with the execution. At this point, the lethal chemical will be administered. An announcement of the time of death will be made and the witnesses will be informed that the execution has concluded. The blinds will be lowered and the witnesses will be escorted out of the facility. A post-execution press release will be distributed shortly thereafter. The press release will be delayed to allow sufficient time for you to transmit a media pool note. The victim family members have, off have been offered the opportunity to make a statement to the media and have decided to do so. Following the execution, they plan to provide a written statement as well as a come back to the media center. Whether they'll take questions or not is going to be their decision, so please be respectful of that. I will briefly go over the guidelines that have been established for the media. BOP media IDs have been issued and must be worn at all times. All media must show a press credential to obtain access to the property, and both the BOP issued media ID and the press credential and lanyard should should be worn on should be you should be wearing on while you're on property today. Due to the current COVID conditions, media representatives must wear a face mask. One has been provided to you. Temperature screening was conducted, and you have signed consenting to the required precautions during your time here today. There is also additional PPE available at the back of the room on the table that you may help yourself to. Media, media must vacate the property one hour after the execution. Only designated public information officers are to be approached regarding any matter related to the execution. BOP media IDs and vehicle signages must be returned to the registration area prior to the departure from the institution. No electronic or mechanical recording devices, including cell phones, no photos or video equipment can be taken to the execution facility. If you have items to be secured, we have issued a bag for you. You can place your items in the bag with your name on it and we will have staff back here supervising this area. PIOs, myself and Christy Bashirs, will accompany media witnesses into the execution facility. During the media witness transport to the execution facility, we will remain with you throughout that process. USP Terre Haute staff have advised that only official BOP spokespersons are authorized to comment regarding institution matters and reporters should not question other staff members on site. One of our primary concerns is to ensure the privacy of all involved. You can have only paper and a pen with you, which will be provided by BOP staff in the media witness room. All right, thank you. We'll wait for further, further information. Stand up and look at the camera so I can get your height real quick. All right, cool. All right. We're good there. All right, give me a mic check. Outside the prison in Terre Haute, 
A much larger than usual crowd of reporters gathered to await the execution. I'm going to start recording. You go out. All right. I was inside the now familiar little media building awaiting instructions. And trying to communicate with colleagues about what was happening. Did you have to turn off your notifications, I assume, or something? Because that would drive me completely insane. People on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else were tagging and messaging us nonstop. I had to go app by app, disabling notifications to get anything done. We sat there as the U.S. Supreme Court was considering a last-minute bid to appoint two Trump allies as attorneys on Bernard's case. They'd asked for some time to review the materials. The court declined, and justice officials started filing out of some back room. Um, we were hanging out together, for lack of a better word, waiting to hear on this, and uh, many of us on the phone, last-minute things. Angela Moore waited it out in San Antonio with another defense attorney who represented Bernard's co-defendant. She ended up being one of the last people Bernard ever heard from. I emailed <clears throat> Brandon's attorney a letter. And he read it to Brandon a few minutes before Brandon was executed. So he at least got to hear from me, but I told him the system failed you and I failed you because you did not get justice, you did not get a fair trial. And if anything, he knew that from the bottom of my heart that, <clears throat> that I was sorry. Inside the death house, the usual. They lifted the curtain and Brandon was there, tied to the table and awaiting the overdose of pentobarbital. He seemed calm and made a point to acknowledge the reporters standing in front of him, something that hadn't happened during any of the executions I witnessed before. We made eye contact. He must have sensed my unease about the whole thing because he gave me that kind of tight-lipped half-smile and head nod that people do when they're acknowledging another person's distress. And we were uneasy, especially those of us who already witnessed the execution of the person who put bullets into each of the victims' heads. Brandon was about to get the same punishment as the guy who shot them. I hated to see him lose his life. So it was, it was very hard. It was very, very hard. And because my name's on the briefs, I helped. And this man's dead and I helped. And I'm not being overly dramatic. You know, people like to say, well, you were just doing your job. Well, my job ended up having this man executed. And if you, if you can't look at your role, then you don't need to be involved in the process. The person leading the execution asked Brandon if he had any final words. He spoke fast, but here's what I was able to write down. For 20 years, I've had a peace in my heart because I know that I've been forgiven. I know my actions caused a tragic event and made victims out of Todd and Stacy, also their family, my family. I wish I could take it back and change these events, but I can't. All I can do is try to live my life the best way I could to honor them. I hoped one day I would have the chance to say sorry, to show how much I was sorry. If my death is what is needed to heal the pain I caused them, so be it. I hope from this moment on, all parties can move forward and that you will forgive me for what I did, what I took away. I didn't mean to. I wish I could take it back. Being around the others on death row taught me to do the right things. I'm just, I'm sorry. 
Those are the only words I can say that completely capture how I feel now and how I felt on that day. The family of Todd Bagley would like to thank President Donald J. Trump, Attorney General William H. Barr, and the Department of Justice. Without this process, my family and I would not have the closure we needed to move on in life. It has been very difficult to wait 21 years for the sentence that was imposed by the judge and jury on those who cruelly participated and the destruction of our children to be finally completed. The local news gave one of my statements and I appreciated the way they presented my quote, when someone deliberately takes the lives of others, they suffer the consequences of their actions. This senseless act of unnecessary evil was premeditated and had many opportunities to be stopped at any time during the nine hour period. This was torture as they pleaded for their lives from the trunk of their own car. Please remember that the lives of family and friends were shattered and we all have grief for 21 years waiting for justice to finally be served. Thank you to all who were involved in this process of getting justice for Todd and Stacy. The statement ended with that line. I know that because the U.S. Prison Bureau's minders handed out printed copies. But when Bagley reached the end of the statement, she seemed compelled to add one more thing. And I would also like to add that the apology and the remorse that was shown to the family and the fact that they regretted their acts at that time helped very much to heal my heart. And I can truly say I forgive them. Thank you. The Trump administration carried out its ninth federal execution of the year last night. Last-minute clemency pleas for Brandon Bernard were rejected. Celebrities and a former U.S. prosecutor had taken up his cause. George Hale from member station WFIU has more. Fans flooded Donald Trump's Twitter account for a week after Kim Kardashian West asked for help trying to save Bernard's life. But late Thursday, it was the mother of a murdered youth minister applauding the president's decision to let the execution go forward. The majority of surviving jurors later changed their minds about Bernard. So did Angela Moore, a former U.S. prosecutor who helped defeat Bernard's appeal. Mr. Bernard was not planning on any kidnapping or killing to happen. Mr. Rialva was. Moore wrote in an op-ed in the Indianapolis Star detailing her objections to Bernard's execution. That's when Kim Kardashian West got involved, tweeting the essay to her nearly 70 million followers. Trump listened to West before. He once hosted her in the White House alongside prisoners he had granted clemency. The star's support offered rare hope to an inmate scheduled to die under a Supreme Court stacked with death penalty supporters. Hours before the execution, Bernard's defense added attorneys and Trump backers Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz to the team. They sought a 14-day stay to review the case. But any hope of Trump intervening faded late Thursday, as prison officials gathered witnesses and the execution went forward. Kardashian West took to Twitter soon after. Our system is so effed up, she said.
coming up on Rush to Kill. We got about 10 seconds. There's anything anybody wants to say before it hangs up. Five seconds. Four. Facing a hard deadline, the U.S. government rushes to carry out two remaining scheduled executions. I've just witnessed the most unimaginable, cold-blooded, premeditated murder. I can't imagine anything worse. They both go very wrong. From the next room. Yeah. And you could hear them. Yeah. I didn't, holy shit. I'm surprised and I'm concerned. Uh, anytime you rush to execute, mistakes get made. It was all hearsay, it was all speculation, and this is what was used to convict an innocent man and execute him. That's next time. This episode was produced by Sarah Whitmire and me, George Hale, with help from Martha Abraham and Kaylee Muneer. Kathy Knapp is our researcher, editing by Perry Metz. Special thanks to Laura Burstein, Denise Valkyrie, and Radley Balco. Thanks also to Graham Smith and Meg Anderson, and to NPR Content Development. More information about this project is available at wfiu.org slash rush to kill.